0: Our study is Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. We'll read verses 1 to 18, the whole chapter. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who was able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given, Him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty-six. This chapter is one of the most difficult chapters in the whole book of Revelation. In terms of controversies and uncertainties, this chapter has been a focal point. And in fact, the last verse that we read, perhaps the most enigmatic part of the whole book of Revelation, that is the number 666. Let me explain the four major viewpoints on how to take this chapter. These viewpoints, are also applicable to the other chapters in the middle part of the book of Revelation. Chapters 6 to 18 or 6 to 19, these various viewpoints diverge on how to interpret the book in the middle section. Well, at this point, this is where some of the different interpretations come out and are more explicitly different and understood in in different ways here. The first one is to take this chapter as being primarily or completely a past event. This is called the Preterist view, meaning it has already happened in the past, and this happened in the first century, in the times of the Apostles, and specifically in the time of John the Apostle, 2,000 years ago, or 1,950 years ago, about that time. That that's when these events occurred. Another view is to take this as being something that's describing the history of the Church. The history of the Church and then primarily the Antichrist would be the Roman Catholic Church. It would be Rome in terms of a political authority but Rome primarily as a religious authority and that would be the Roman Catholic Church. That would be the historicist view of this. and. Just going back to the first view, the first view that says that it happened in the first century, they primarily say the Antichrist was Nero, the Emperor Nero. So they take it more as a political figure who also did religious harm to the Christian Church. And then the second view takes it as the Antichrist being the Roman Catholic Church, primarily a religious figure or entity, the Pope and all that he stands for in the Roman Catholic Church. Then the third view is the dispensational view and it's also the futurist view. That view takes the contents of this chapter to be entirely future, entirely future and specifically events that happen during the time of the tribulation in the uh, three and a half years especially of the tribulational period. Seven year tribulational period, the first three and a half years are peaceful, the last three and a half years are filled with Turmoil and persecution against the Christian church, the last three and a half, and that is when these events occur, according to that viewpoint. And then, fourthly, uh, uh, of the view that takes this in the uh, panoramic view or uh, pan historical view that is, this is describing the way political and religious figures treat the Christian church throughout history. Yes, we can identify. Rome as a culprit. We can even identify the Roman Catholic Church as a culprit, but we may also identify the Babylonians, the Egyptians when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and any world empire or any nation and any nation's ruler who militates against the Christian Church. Now that is the the fourth view. I tend to go with the fourth view. In this exposition, I will explain the the verses as we go along, and after. The the lecture part of it. Afterwards, we can uh, discuss it and ask questions. Okay, chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. You may notice, especially if you use the King James version of the Bible, that the King James says, and I stood. I meaning I, John, stood. And there is, uh, there are some Greek manuscripts that have the personal pronoun I, but The other manuscripts have the personal pronoun, he, from the Greek uh, word, the Greek verb, and the difference between the form of the Greek verb is only one letter, so it's easy to see how just one letter, misreading it or not having it there or abbreviating the word or whatever may have happened, that that is the cause for the distinction. The NASB, which I read, says, and he stood, and that is primarily the way modern translations take it. Now, if it is he stood, who is the he? The he would be the serpent and the dragon, who is the same individual, Satan, of the previous chapter. Verses 9 to 17 describe him, and it says there in 9.15, "...the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman." And then it says in verse uh, 16, uh, "...which the dragon poured out of his mouth." And in verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. We said last time that the woman is a representative of the church, the Christian church, and so Satan persecuting the woman, the Christian church. Here here also, he's involved. Satan is involved in chapter 13 by influencing, possessing and influencing the beast from the sea, and also the beast from the earth, which is mentioned in verse 11, 13, 11. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. So he's there, and he's there to influence them and guide them and use them to afflict the Christian church. And that's the way we'll take it here in 13, verse 1. And he is the dragon, Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. So he stood there because he is overseeing all of these evils that are about to take place. Verse 1 continues, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. He sees a beast. This beast is described in the first ten verses, and then another beast is described in verses 11 to 18. When he sees this first beast coming up out of the sea, we we can tell from chapter 11 verse 7 that when he comes up out of the sea, it could be that he's coming up out of the abyss, this bottomless pit or the abyss. Chapter 11 verse 7 says that the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them in chapter 11 verse 7 and here in this chapter the beast has a similar role the beast is a persecutor of the church and so th- this is one way to take the sea another way to take the sea is to cross reference it to chapter 17 in chapter 17 in chapter 17 and verse 15 the sea represents the mass of mankind all the peoples of the earth. Notice in 1715, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's another interpretation to take the sea to be this mass of mankind where there's wickedness, there's deception, there's animosity towards the Christian church, there's idolatry, paganism, all of that goes on in the world, and that verse in chapter 17, verse 15, compares the peoples to be like tumultuous waters, like the sea, the ocean, having these kinds of waters. Then, it's describing the beast as having ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on, on the horns. Now, horns on the head... These can be identified according to chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, and they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. The beast has these ten horns, that is, he has control and, and agreement with these kings ...because they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They work together in order to do harm to the church. Then it also says in 13 verse 1 that he has seven heads. Seven heads, this is also described for us in chapter 17. In chapter 17 verse 9, "...here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings." five have fallen one is the other has not yet come and when he comes he must remain a little while now notice here in 179 it says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits the woman is this great harlot of chapter 17 17 and 18 and this great harlot is the city of rome in this in these chapters and he's saying here that rome has had five Important kings or Caesars, and it says the other one is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Because of this verse, these verses in chapter 17, the preterist view that says that all these events took place in the first century, they they seize on those verses to say, aha, they have to be these five Caesars and then one who is currently reigning and then the one who is yet to come the one who is yet to come, they say that that was likely, uh, and, and he remained for a little while, that was Nero. So they take these kings of chapter 17 to be the Roman kings of the first century. Well, what is it that happens? On his heads were blasphemous names. On his heads. He has these seven heads, but he's got blasphemous names. Blasphemy is an insult or a slander against God. Typically, this is the way the Bible looks at blasphemy. It is slander or an insult, something that is very sacrilegious against God himself. He has blas- blasphemous names because he considers himself, this beast, he considers himself to be a deity. He considers himself to be a god. And this is not surprising. The, the Egyptian pharaohs, they consider themselves to be a god, or sons of God, which equals being a type of a god themselves. In in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, the king of Tyre, he considers himself to be a god, and God pronounces a punishment against him for that very claim. And The Romans, the Romans being pagans also, they consider themselves to be gods. They even have names. They have these monikers identifying themselves as deity, as possessing a divine nature, being a god, being lord. They call themselves by these names and expect people to call them by those names. They even make images that look like them and make people worship those images. So in that way, these rulers, they blaspheme God because they take upon themselves attributes that only belong to God. They are blasphemous, and anyone who does so is insulting God. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now he's described as being like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Immediately one can see, if one has read in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, 7, the whole chapter um, practically covers a vision that Daniel sees with beasts that look like these, these three, and then a fourth beast that does not have a name. So here, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. A leopard is characterized by having Uh, ferocity, fierceness, uh, speed and ferocity. A bear uh, also able to tear and destroy but one who does so with great power even if he does do it slowly as he moves around his big body going from place to place though it can run fast as well it usually walks around slowly and does whatever it wants and eats whatever it wants. And the mouth of a lion The moment one hears the roaring of a lion, it strikes terror. It strikes terror in people. It it strikes terror in animals. And they're not called the king of the jungle for no reason because they are the strongest and most feared among them. Well, the beast is like this. The beast has these attributes because of the following sentence in verse 2. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. This beast is possessed and controlled and empowered by Satan, Satan the dragon. Satan gives him power, a throne, that is a dominion, a rulership and great authority. It is coming from Satan himself. Then verse three, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, it says one of his heads. If one of his heads is like um, we said from chapter 17, chapter 17 that it is one of the kings that was reigning in the first century, those who take that view, they say that either... The, Emperor, uh, the Roman Emperor Caligula or Nero, these are the two main choices, they say that those two, in the case of the, the first, Caligula, he actually did suffer and people thought that he was going to die but he recovered and in the case of Nero people thought for quite a while, a few decades, that he never did die though he committed suicide, he didn't want to be publicly humiliated, because he knew his time had come, so he committed suicide, and people thought that he would come back uh, alive and, and all. Preterists, who take this as being the first century, identify one of those two Caesars as one who nearly died, or did die, and then came back to life. But the futurist, the futurist view will take this to mean that there's going to be some kind of setback and maybe even physical harm done to the beast, but then the beast will recover. He'll recover, and then he'll be the, the source of turmoil and persecution for the Christian church. But uh, also, then, if we, one takes this as more uh, figurative and symbolic, this could be a description of how evil forces, they do reign and they do commit A lot of of turmoil and destruction and death onto people and especially the Christian Church and sometimes they die in the sense that you think that they're gone they won't harm us anymore but then they come right back up after a short time and that may be the symbolic way to look at verse 3 well whatever it is verse 3 also says the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? They see that the beast recovers, and so they worship him, the whole world. We know that this whole world is not every person in the world, but the whole wicked world, the whole unbelieving world, the whole reprobate world. Not the world of believers. The world of believers will not do this. The world of unbelievers will do this. And so, this is no surprise. The Apostle Paul described that such things would happen. In 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he describes how miracles will occur and people will follow after false Miracles. Second Thessalonians two, eight. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. So as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. He clearly describes that the lawless one, the Antichrist, or here the beast, will perform miracles and people will follow him because of miracles. They will at least think it as a true miracle when it's not really. It's a false wonder, as 2 Thessalonians 2 says. And they will think no one is able to withstand. No one is able to resist him. In 13.4 it says, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? They will feel hopeless and helpless because of the power of this beast. Verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It says in verse 5, there was given to him, it says it twice, that it was given to him. We saw earlier in chapter 6, verses 4 and 8, chapter 7, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 5, and here we see that this phrase, was given, means that God allows, He delegates this kind of authority to the beast to do this work. That is, God gives it into the hand of Satan, and then Satan gives it into the hand of the beast, to perform these kinds of things, and even to do these evil things against God and the people of God. We should not be surprised by this. I have mentioned more than once Job chapters 1 and 2, where God gives it to Satan to have power to bring destruction on Job's possessions and even his own family members, his own children, and he used two means by nature, and he used two means by people, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. He aroused them to come and attack Job, Job's possessions. So this is, should not be a surprise that from God to Satan to people against the people of God, things are perpetrated against them. And this is what happens here as well. However, he has this authority only for 42 months. 42 months. 42 months, 42 months is three and a half years, uh, 1260 days. This is another way to describe a designated, short, brief period, brief compared to the history of the world, and even especially brief compared to eternity, a time for the Christian church to be tested, to be persecuted, to be afflicted by the enemies of God and God's people. Now, notice it says he speaks arrogant words and blasphemies against God to blaspheme God's name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. His tabernacle is identified as the people of God in heaven. God considers them his tabernacle, his dwelling place, because he dwells among them. He dwells right there with them. This is characteristic of the enemies of God they will spite God. They'll slander God. They'll say evil things about God. They will try to take some of God's glory. They want the honor themselves. They want to worship themselves. They do this. But they also, when they cannot do physical harm to God, they can't do that. All they can do is have evil thoughts and evil words against God. But when they want to do things physically, they take it out on the people of God. The people of God, because they are the messengers of God, they have the word of God, and when they are faithful to that word of God, inevitably, people will rise up against it and attack them. And this is what he does here in verse 6. He opened his mouth against God and God's tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is characteristic of all enemies. Verse 7. How far can he go? Verse 7, And it was given to him, again delegated to him, to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This is not out of control persecution. We might think so for a moment. People, the world might think so that they have the upper hand, but God's the one who gives the beast the authority to make war with the saints, to make war with them and to overcome them and to have authority over all the peoples of the earth. To overcome in this context does not mean to ultimately overcome, but to physically overcome. Not ultimately, but physically. We know that from chapter 11 and verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And killed him. Chapter 6 and verse 9. And when he had broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They were slain because of the testimony they had maintained. As well, chapter 16, verse 6. Revelation sixteen six. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink they deserve it god punishes our persecutors because they poured out the blood of saints and prophets they poured out our blood so god pours out their blood in other words just retribution now we should not we should not be alarmed and we should not think that God has lost control. Notice what will happen. In Revelation 15, 15 verse 2, what will we do one day? Revelation 15:2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast, and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We will sing about how We come off victorious, verse 2 says. We come off victorious. Yes, we are slain, but we are victorious, and we'll sing this victory song one day to God. Also, remember that the Apostle Paul was about to be executed even by Romans, and he says in 2 Timothy 4.18, that the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He knew that his physical body was about to be extinguished, but he knew that his soul was protected by God and that there would be a day of resurrection. He would safely go to heaven and be with God forever, and that's all that mattered to him. Now, what is it? What is it that will help us to endure persecution? Faith. It is faith. 1 John chapter 5 Verse 4, 1 John 5, 4 to 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's our faith that will help us to overcome. It's not only our faith, but the one who gives faith to us as a gift. The mechanism is the gift of faith that God gives to us. Now let's look at how faith is a gift of God that he gives to some. Verse 8. Notice verse 8. The cause of our faith, the cause of our enduring faith is verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Meaning all the unbelievers. He further describes them. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life before the world began. They will be the ones who will worship the beast. They will worship all that is false, but not the righteous. We have faith that endures, And why do we have faith? The cause of our faith is given here in verse 8. We we have had our name written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The Lamb who has been slain slain identifies it as Christ. Christ is the one. Now, He has been slain in time and space 2,000 years ago about A.D. 30, about this time, about this time, March, April, 2,000 years ago, He died on the cross for our sins. He was slain. However, we may also take this to be a reference to the purposes of God, the decrees of God that were in place before the foundation of the world, that God would send His Son into the world to die for our sins, the hour are we people whose names are written in the book of life. Jesus would eventually come into the world. This was planned before the world started. He would come into the world to die for our sins because our names are written in God's book of life. Jesus died for us, we who have our names written in the book of life. This is the way to understand this verse. Now, in the King James Version, it does say that the Lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world, and that verse makes it even more clear that this was in the mind of God, in the purposes of God, in the plan of God before the world began, that Jesus would die for those whose names are in the book of life. Amen. Now, verse 9. When we speak of predestination, which verse 8 just did, it takes ears, spiritual ears, to hear it, to hear it with joy, to hear it with understanding, to hear it with faith. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Not everyone understands what was just said in verse 8. They can understand to some degree of what verse 7 is, but they don't like to understand want to understand verse 8. But that understanding comes if God gives it. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Those who have an ear to hear these truths, these mysteries, these enigmas of predestination and election, they will hear it and they will embrace it. But those who don't, will reject it. They will mock it, they'll ridicule it, they'll fight against it, they'll overturn it until God changes them, if He does change them. Now how do we know that verse nine is indeed speaking about people who have to have a gift from God to hear for them to understand election or predestination? Well, Revela- or, excuse me, Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 29, verse four. Moses is about to die and he tells this generation, this young generation about to inherit the land of Canaan under Joshua, he tells them in Deuteronomy 29.4, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. It has to be God who gives it to hard-hearted, ignorant, and rebellious people dead in trespasses and sins. He has to give them ears that are stopped up, that are unable to listen. He has to give eyes that are blind to spiritual truths to embrace that which is true of God and His salvation. And it takes God to give them a heart to know or a heart to understand because we have hard hearts. We have uncircumcised hearts that need to be changed and even need to be opened, as the scripture says of Lydia in Acts 16:13 and 14. So this is a gift of God, and we who have it will respond in that way. Now verse 10. Verse 10 presents a further contrast. A contrast, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, in verse 10, the first clause, NASB says, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Your translation may have something different there. You, you may be able to tell if your translation italicizes is destined. If it italicizes it, it's showing that the original language, the Greek language, does not have the verb there. It's a, it's a silent or unexpressed verb. It's not written there. And so, others have suggested that it should be rendered if anyone leads to captivity to captivity he goes meaning if someone perpetrates captivity to innocent christians god will bring captivity to him he's going to punish him with equal justice and that would go along with the second sentence if anyone kills with the sword with the sword he must be killed the one who perpetrates the killing of christians will himself be killed by God. That is what is the intention here in verse 10, that due retribution, just retribution, will come upon the people who attack the people of God. It's meant there, it's it's placed there, and meant for us to understand that our persecutors will be punished. So God is a God of justice and righteousness. It will happen in His time. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. It will happen to him just as he has desired it to happen to others. But it's also there for us to understand that though we experience this kind of persecution, we must maintain our faith. It's a reminder. He says here, here is the perseverance and the faith of Of the saints. Herein is, in this way, the perseverance and the faith of the saints is encouraged and maintained. Saints are encouraged to know that God is a God of justice and he will punish the wicked in due time. And this is one way to enable us to persevere in the faith to trust the God of justice, just as Abraham did. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly, he said, Genesis 18. He knew that God was a God of justice and he believed in that as well and he persevered as well in his faith. This is the way we persevere. Trusting in the promises of God and the attributes of God. Verse 11. Now we turn to what is said here, another beast. Now, this beast last section of chapter 13 there are interpreters who say that this beast is basically the same as the beast of the first part of the chapter just in different forms or in different manifestations the first one is more political and the second one is more religious and we'll see the religious connotations in a moment but others take these two beasts to be different People or different institutions, either throughout history or at the end of history, different people or institutions separate separated by political uh, entity and a religious entity in the future. Either way, we may take it. Verse eleven says, "And I saw another beast." Another beast. Now, when, when we see that in English, and naturally, we think this is another beast. So it's probably not the same person or same entity as the first. But then again, John is using many figures of speech and images here. And it says there in verse 11, he's coming up out of the earth. Coming out um, of the earth. So why the distinction? The sea in the first case, now earth in this second case. This too is difficult to understand however it may be that he's coming from the earth not coming from heaven in distinction to heaven because he is an earthly creature he's got an earthly mind he's earthly he's natural he's demonic as james describes the world in james 3. so this is the way uh, that i take it that this beast is described as one who does not have any divine authority he's not being sent by God he's an earthly person or entity or institution an earthly creation and it deserves to be destroyed it deserves to be temporary he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon two horns like a lamb he has a resemblance to a lamb he has a resemblance to a lamb now we begin this description more in religious terms religious and theological terms remember that jesus said that false prophets false prophets will arise and they will come as ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing matthew 7:15 ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing these are false prophets they claim to be prophets of god but they're actually from the devil, and that's why it says he spoke as a dragon. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 11:3. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You tolerate and put up with this beautifully when deception comes from the devil. Now, how does the devil manifest himself? 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, 11.13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as the servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. He looks like a lamb, innocent, even like the Lamb of God, but he is a ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing, and he's controlled by the devil, the serpent, of old the devil he speaks like the devil so he deceives now we should also cross reference this verse verse 11 Re- revelation 13:11 with revelation 16:13 because this beast is called by another name later 16:13 and this will make it absolutely clear in revelation that he is a religious figure 16:13 says and i saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs according to the two beast interpretation revelation 16:13 this first beast mentioned the dragon of course is satan the first beast mentioned would be the beast of the sea From chapter 13, and then the mouth of the false prophet, the false prophet would be the beast out of the earth, coming up out of the earth. And we'll see later also, chapter 19, chapter 19, verse 20, 19, 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. We see in this verse that they are distinguished, the beast and the false prophet. The false prophet performs signs in his presence. That phrase, signs in his presence, in the presence of the beast, and this would take the false prophet to be a second beast who performs signs, which is described in chapter 13, 11 to 18, performs signs in the presence of the first beast. So, religious figure for sure. Now let's return to Revelation 13, 12. In 13, 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So, all the authority that the first beast has from Satan, the second beast has in the presence of the first beast. So they are there working together, doing their mischief against God and the people of God. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The false prophet has as his goal to make people worship the first beast, the beast out of the sea. In verse 13, he performs great signs, just like we read in chapter 19, verse 20. He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, this fire that comes out of heaven, among the Jews, they had in ancient times this custom of describing the great miraculous abilities of the prophets by shorthand, and that was by saying that Elijah brought fire down from heaven. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 1, he did so with his enemies, his own people actually, and the the commanders and their troops who came and insisted that he come and uh, that he go with them to go to the king, the evil king, and present himself to the evil king. He rained fire, a couple of times and destroyed the men instantly. And that became uh, a way to describe the great miraculous abilities that prophets had. Well, this false prophet does likewise. Remember Second Thessalonians also told us that he will perform signs and false wonders, he'll perform miracles, and he'll do these kinds of things. And it'll be in the presence of men so that they are terrified, they are awed, and they worship as the false prophet directs them to worship, to worship the beast. Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Here now they change not to personal worship, but to idolatrous worship, that is making an image or statue and considering that image to be a god and to be an exact or perfect representation of God. They worship idols now. He makes the world worship idols. And verse 15, And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He even makes this image, this idol, to be able to speak. Now, you might say that that is impossible. Well, whenever people worship idols, they actually worship demons. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter ten, and verse twenty. No, but I say that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Demons are able, and they do, inhabit idols. So when one sacrifices to an idol, prays to an idol, they're actually also praying and sacrificing to demons. This is what is happening. Now, it sometimes does occur, even today, you will see examples of this or hear examples of this and even eyewitness testimony of these things happening. When people worship idols, sometimes they see the idols, which is just a cold statue, blink, talk, voice comes out of the idol. And it's not the voice of an idol because an idol is just a cold, lifeless creature, uh, creation. But it is a demon speaking from within the idol that talks to the worshipers. This even happens today. And this is the kind of thing that will happen here in Revelation thirteen fifteen. The false prophet causes, with his power, causes the image to be able to speak and to talk to people and convince people that it is real and ought to be feared and followed. Verse 16, He causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. The all here means all of the unbelieving world, not all people who ever lives, nor all believers at any given time in history, because believers will not do this. It is unbelievers who do so, but they're called all in verse 16, and then described, small and great, meaning have low rank in society or have a high or great rank in society, rich and poor, free men and slaves. Basically, he's describing various classes, types, kinds of people. That's what he's doing, saying all kinds of people are going to worship him, all kinds of unbelieving people, wicked people, they will worship Him and and hold their allegiance to Him by this mark on their right hand or forehead. And the purpose of it, verse 17, And He provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of His name. No one can buy or sell. So there you go. You can't live anymore or you'll have a desperate livelihood if you don't have this mark. And this is an easy way to entrap and enslave everybody. It's an easy way. Everybody wants to eat. They don't want to starve to death. So this is what will happen. They will cause people to have to have this mark. Either this mark will be on the right hand or forehead, and it will either be the name of the beast or the number of his name. Uh, a code number or an enigmatic way to refer to the beast. Verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man and his number is 666. Wisdom is figuring out who this man is. It says he is, uh, it's the number of a man, it's the number of this beast, and his number is 666. We know for, for sure it's not the number 777. We know in the Bible the number 7 is a complete, whole, perfect number. Started with creation week in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2. And that becomes a symbol for complete or perfect, usually good things, but sometimes even evil things, like the seven heads earlier in this chapter. So, Seven is a number of completion or perfection, but six is not. And three times something emphasizes that fact. Now, at the very least, we can say that. But then others have tried to identify based on the letters of people's names, especially ancient names, especially in the first century. In the first century, the names of the Roman uh, Caesars, the Roman emperors, such as Nero's name. They tried to tabulate from the spelling of his name, assigning a numerical number to each letter of the alphabet, which is not unusual, because in many languages, especially ancient languages, this is what occurs. For example, the the letter A would be number one, the letter B would be number two, so forth, to Z, and there's even a way to have tens and hundreds, and then to combine them in order to Uh, have a a way of counting and a numerical system. So that way of counting and identifying numbers has been done in ancient times. Many languages have done so. So that's what some interpreters do, and they try to identify it as one of the kings or emperors of the first century. Others have taken this to be a designation of the Pope. The Pope, and of the Pope, uh, Popery or the the papacy of the Middle Ages and even today, that this is a a way to identify the anti-Christian religion that comes out of Rome. And then another way to look at it is to look at it as somebody who will have a name, and however people will at that time in the future calculate numbers and assign numbers to uh, the letters, letters to the numbers that they will be able to figure out that this is the Antichrist. What should we learn from this chapter? We need to learn that God is in control of the evil forces. Though they perpetrate their evils against us, we must persevere. God will give us the victory. We must endure till the end. And resist all evil and maintain our faith. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.